just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 99 of Speaking Influence. Yes, we are going to very shortly be celebrating 100 episodes of Speaking Influence. And I can hardly believe that we've got this far with the show. But here we are. And my guest on today's show is somebody who I heard on a friend's podcast If you haven't already listened to the Story Powers podcast with my friend Francisco Mafuz, I I recommend it. It's a really good show and he talks about stories with amazing storytellers and has some really fascinating guests. And I'd also heard my guest today speaking at a PSA event, the Public Speaking Association, just earlier this year. He was a guest speaker, one of several at a one-day event, and I thought he was very interesting there as well. It was an easy ask then to approach him about being on my show, and he was more than happy to say yes and agree to doing that. And the conversation, honestly, this is a fascinating conversation. For somebody who is primarily teaching non-speakers how to speak and helping people to be able to present scientific information in a way that isn't dry and boring, and someone who also likes to challenge the status quo of things, which I definitely find interesting, and I know you will too, this is the kind of material that I love having on the show. You may know that the show is taking a much stronger focus on the influence and persuasion side of things. In fact, that is part of the mission brief of the show now is to focus on the application and psychology of influence and persuasion on any professional platform. And if that's of interest to you, then the wide range of guests that I'm bringing on, whether they're speakers, whether they are marketers, whether they are content creators, authors, a whole wide range of people who talk about influence and persuasion in all sorts of different ways, you're going to learn something. And my goal is that we all leave the show smarter than when we came into it. And I certainly hope you find that to be the case for you as well. My guest today is Simon Raybould. And Simon is a super interesting guy. I highly recommend you connect with him on social media. And if you get the chance to hear him speak, you will enjoy it. You will hear something a little bit different to the usual public speaking gurus and the personal development speakers who you often hear. Someone who challenges things a bit more and thinks about things in a somewhat more out of the box kind of way. I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy that as much as I did. And I hope you will consider sharing the show out and supporting the show as well. Hey, look, your support for the show means everything to me. 
And for as little as five US dollars a month, you can buy me a coffee and help the show to grow. You can do that on the Supercast page in the show notes. You'll find that there are some courses that I'm releasing very soon. And I am putting up a quiz on my website, which is going to find out how persuasive you really are. And if your persuasion is of the ethical variety, if you want to find out what your influence and persuasion quotient is, then you're going to want to take that test. Visit presentinfluence.com. And whilst you're there, check out the show, check out past shows, check out some of the articles up there and other information as well, the courses that are now available to you. And if you're interested in any of that, then we'd love to help you on your learning journey. For now, enjoy the show. Welcome to Speaking Influence, the show about the psychology and application of influence and persuasion on any professional platform. If you have an online business, you need to work on list building. The easiest way to get started for free is ConvertKit. It's recommended by industry pros like Pat Flynn and our very own Johnny Ball. Click the link in the show notes and start building your list today. Simon Robel, welcome to Speaking Influence. So much looking forward to this. Really, really looking forward to this. (laughs) I've been really looking forward to it as well, because uh, I love it when people really challenge the authority and say, you know, that's not necessarily so. And I have some other perspectives on it, because I think uh, public speaking particularly is one of those areas where people do tend to just take people at the word and say, oh, yeah, that's how you do it. Oh, yeah. Imagine your audience naked, all that sort of stuff that we now have. Got like, oh, no, 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 that's no, generally no. bad advice. <laughs> that, don't do that. What happens if the audience is ugly? Um, but more seriously, exactly. yeah, more seriously, I, I think, and I'm going to get straight on soapbox here, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that anybody can set themselves up as a professional speaker or a public speaker or a presentations trainer. The barrier to entry is so low. There's no official qualification. And I get that. That's That's fine. But what it means is that there are an awful lot of people going, I did this. It worked for me. Therefore, this must be how you do it. Forgetting Mm. that other people need to work in, in different ways. So there's quite a few friends of mine who are professional speakers who train people in being speakers forgetting that the people that they are training are not professional speakers. They are just, I don't know, maybe they're an accountant who has to make a report to the board, which is different from holding the stage in front of 200 people. It's a very different ballpark. It's a very different thing. You've got different rules, different levels of preparation, different levels of confidence, almost no ability to practice. There's a whole bunch of differences that Mm. some people don't take account of. This is something that I get on my soapbox a lot about in the coaching world, particularly. And public speaking coaching does kind of count in that as well. That just about anyone can get up and call themselves a coach, just as much as anyone can get Mm. up and call themselves Mm. a speaker. And whilst there are now some bodies who are claiming to be the regulatory bodies, and I think a lot of people are recognizing ICF more than anything for coaches, and there are some public speaking organizations that people can belong to, it doesn't it doesn't preclude anyone just being able to, as you say, just call themselves a speaker, call themselves a coach and get out there and do that. Do you think there should be some kind of coverage of this, some kind of agency who says who is and isn't actually a professional speaker? Definitely so. And definitely I should be in charge of it. That's just a fairly <laughs> straightforward answer, isn't it? Um, honestly, it, it's something that I'm in two minds about because I love the idea of being people being able to say what they have got to say. I don't want to stop anybody you know, saying their truth, as it were, it just sometimes winds me up that these people, now hand on heart, 
it, one of the things that winds me up is that these people are better at selling themselves than than I am. So they make more money out of it than I do by peddling the, the what I know is tosh or the received wisdom, all of that kind of stuff. So no, I don't want to regulate it to that extent. It's not my place. That would mean that I'm doing exactly the same sorts of things that I'm complaining about other people doing. So I don't want to be that level of, of hypocrite, but it does grind my gears a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. And it does me too. And, and there is that thing. There's a real truth in what you're saying there about often it's the people who are the most confident and sometimes the most energized who will get audience and get people buying courses and programs and get people mm -hmm. coming to their speaking events. But they're not always saying anything that actually makes sense. People will listen to stuff and, and maybe question less when somebody sounds really confident and very sure of what they're saying. And, and I think people can end up I think that's very often how people end up believing a lot of these not necessarily true things in public speaking. Mm -hmm. Particularly if they are those things that you picked up from lots of different places. So you hear, for example, the 7% myth that, you know, only 7% of communication comes from the words we use. It's Tosh. The guy who's researched their reporting has said it is Tosh. It's a desperately bad interpretation of his research. It is so bad that from a statistical PhD point of view, I can only go, you are deliberately interpreting that badly because that is so clearly not what the research says. But if it's reported in this website and that website and this person and that person and this newspaper article, and they all start feeding on each other, somebody who goes online for a presentation tip or a little bit of presentation advice, hears that same bit of tosh, that same bit of nonsense from all over the place. And they start to genuinely believe it. And it becomes part of the received ongoing wisdom. It must be true because everybody else tells me it is true. Indeed. And that was Albert Morabia, yeah. right? And, and I see that misquoted or misused so much. And I remember when I very first did a presentation skills training that that was taught to me as this is how communication works in that way that is clearly wrong. And everyone just accepted it. I just accepted it because oh. it seemed believable. But, but it, it wasn't until later on that I got, oh, it's, it's absolute rubbish. Hang on, Johnny. How, how believable can it be? Where do you live? In Spain, right? <laughs> hey, do you, how much yeah. Spanish do you speak? Oh, fairly, uh, yeah, okay. fairly. So if you don't speak Spanish, what the misquotes of the Moravian stuff is suggesting is that you'd still be able to understand 97% of what people around you are saying. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's face it. That's pretty much not the case, is it? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it just... I, I, I agree. And it also really doesn't cover things like communication on phone calls. There's just so much to it that it's like you can drill those holes in quite naturally. But one thing that it does do, because once you realize that that is not actually true and it's just something that people have been spreading around for a long time, when I see people teaching that now, I think like you do, I think you either don't know enough to know that you're wrong or you are intentionally mm. teaching bad information. And either way, it isn't good. Uh, and that makes me not want to learn from you. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. I would go the other way. I would ask for a refund and I'll be like, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm going to step back. And that's one of the things that I'm quite proud of in terms of what I do in that my background is that I spent 24 years as a, a university researcher. So I've still got the skills and the facilities to go back to the original core research that people are quoting. And I can read the the research reports with all the stats in the same way as most people read the newspaper because I've got a PhD in, and that kind of stuff. So it's relatively easy, relatively easy for me. So I can get back to those and I can go, actually, this is what the paper, the research paper actually said. <laughs> 
and I can look at it and go, well, here are the caveats of the research rather than what the headline interpretations of those bits of research are. And it's one of the things that I like to think makes me a bit different from, from most people. And it's one of the reasons that I challenge an awful lot of the received wisdom because the received wisdom is oversimplified. But I have to confess, somebody did challenge me the other day and, and gave me something to think about and said, okay, Simon, what this person is saying is not true, but is it helpful? Actually, yes. <laughs> so where's the harm? So it's this idea that we are left-brained or right-brained. We were thinking of that. I mean, it's nonsense. Right. There's no idea. The, the, the brain just does not work like that. You talk to any, any biologist, yeah. it's, just, it's just nonsense. But it is a reasonable analogy to go, are you left-brained or right-brained? I'm left-brained. Okay, so how would you explain this to a right-brained person? And it, as a teaching tool, it has some validity because you're challenging people to think in the way that other people think, in, in the way that their audience might think compared to how they think. The fact that it's not true and doesn't hold any scientific validity is sometimes less important than the utility of it, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm talking myself no, in circles, get you. but get the yeah. idea. So there is this, you know, <laughs> no, no, I'd, say, I'd, I'd yeah. like to think that the world is black and white, but I have to admit that there's you know, lots of shades of grey in the middle. I, I often will say this with clients because I'm quite scientifically minded. I'm not a scientist, but I, I love science. I love reading science magazines and articles. And, and You're left-brained. You're left-brained, Johnny. You're left-brained. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it comes from, this is almost like my personal pushback against all the bullshit that I've been fed throughout my life, if that makes sense. Because I, I feel like I've gone through a lot of my life believing stuff that wasn't true and being fed misinformation or stories and thinking I, I believe stuff that was my personal pushback against all that and so now I, I love stuff that is researched and scientifically tested and I I've probably put a lot more onto that but I have come to realize that there are certain beliefs that are useful to have and not necessarily true so when I hear people saying stuff like oh the universe has got your back it's like the universe doesn't give a flying fig about, about me I'm trying to keep the language you know with, with it but that's my belief but do I think that's a useful belief yeah I actually probably do and I have no real qualms about saying it do I believe that's actually true no so it, it's interesting is that I think in terms of just what we actually believe and, and what's really true there is some cognitive dissonance yeah, for sure. absolutely and, and that's the only way to live because if uh, trust me, I've tried to be literalist about this, and you go crazy very, very quickly. So you have to accept that there's some cognitive dissonance. You have to accept there are some grey areas, and you have to accept that, frankly, we're all hypocrites. It's the only way in which we can function as a society. I've yeah. met a couple of people who were absolutist, completely and utterly absolutist, in that this is true, and what you're saying is wrong, and therefore, and they couldn't function successfully in society because society requires us to, to blur the... And I'm actually doing... I'm, I'm being a hypocrite there because I'm, I'm taking a case study of N equals two and extrapolating an entire trend from a case study of, you know, I've met two of these people, therefore they're all like it, which is, which is clearly, you know, it's clearly a scientific nonsense. I don't know that they're all like it. That's just been my experience. So, yeah, fully aware that I'm being hypocritical because I'm just doing what I'm complaining about other people doing. <laughs> <laughs> but I still think it's great to challenge the regular wisdom in, in things. And one of the one of the shows that I really enjoyed was with my guest Lauren Waldman, who's become a, a great friend and I've had her on a few times. And she is what we'd call a neuroscience translator. Mm -hmm. 
And we, we spent a lot of time talking about things like learning styles, stuff that people are teaching that is just that it's absolute rubbish. It's been um, disproved. It's been debunked. And yet people are still out there teaching it. And I guess it's that same thing. They don't necessarily know better or perhaps they think it's useful. I'm not sure I see the utility in it. But, in learning styles. Uh, yeah. I can see a utility in it, in that from a presentation's point of view, it forces you to think, would what I'm saying work for visual learners, kinesthetic learners, and aural learners? And it just asks you the question of how can I up my game to make it appeal to more people? The fact that there are not aural, kinesthetic, or oral learners is an irrelevance. That's one of those things that's not it's not true, but it might might be. Although having said that, I did a presentation about three years ago now, where I threw up all kinds of data on the screen behind me and said, look, I'm debunking the VAC myth. And most of the audience went, ooh, whoa. And there's one person sat in the middle of the second row who gives me the death stare. And I'm sure as a professional speaker, you've seen the death stare. It's the one that yeah, if yeah. I had a sniper rifle right now, this presentation would be over, sunshine. It's that level of... Um, <laughs> and I discovered... Well, you, you can imagine yeah, it, yeah. I, I discovered later on, it's because she owned a company who sold VAC tests to CEOs. <laughs> and at that point, she's got two options. You know, option one is to go, Simon, you're absolutely right. Everything I'm doing is bunkum. I will close down my company and give back the money I've taken off people for 20 years. Or she can put her hands over her ears, metaphorically, and go, la, 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 your data conflicts with my opinion, therefore your data are wrong. Yeah, and of yeah. course, she went for the second option. I... <laughs> <laughs> because it, 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 it speaks very strongly to something I'm going to call identity variables. Those are things which you believe about yourself so tightly that they are part of your identity. She believed in the VAC model so tightly that she couldn't let go of it without letting go of, of who, and, who and what she was. So what I was saying yeah. was a direct physical or perceived as a direct physical threat to, to the who and, what, you know, who and what she believed that she was. Uh, right. It would be like doing a presentation on debunking power pose and seeing Amy Cuddy's in the audience <laughs> or something well, the like that. The analogy I always use in these circumstances is... My passport says I'm six foot tall. It's a lie. It's a lie. I'm only five foot 11 and three quarters, but I lied on the passport just because my dad wanted to have a six foot tall son. So I'm, I'm six foot tall. I'm, I'm white. I've got gray hair. I'm male. I look in the mirror and that's what I expect to see. But if I suddenly see that I'm five foot two and female with long red curly hair, then I've got two options. I can either go everything I thought I knew about myself was true, was, was, was not true, or the mirror is lying to me. Now I'm 58. I've got 58 years of experience of being a, of, of being a white male. So I'm going to assume the mirror is wrong. So you give people these challenges to their identity variables in your presentations, and they cannot accept it. It's not that they won't listen to you. It's just that they cannot accept it because it's a threat, a dangerous threat as far as they are concerned. They believe mm. that they are a six-foot-tall white man, and you're telling them they're actually a five-foot-tall two tall woman, and they're just going to go, no, 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 you're wrong. Yeah, I, I, I believe we could easily have a whole podcast series just about debunking learning <laughs> myths and things like that. Is that there's enough of it? I, I know that you, you mentioned already you have a, a scientific background, and I wonder how much of that you bring into your presentations. I'd like to think that the content is based upon the science stuff. Twenty four years as a researcher. PhD in medical statistics, uh, centre manager for the UK's largest social science research unit, all of that. But the, the delivery is based upon the fact I've been a professional actor, fire eater, lighting designer, um, and, and playwright. So I like to think it's the best of both worlds. So I like to think that it's heavy duty stuff delivered with a really light touch. 
I like to think I'm good at it. I like to think I count that balance a lot of the time, but it is a tightrope. And if I'm not careful, I very, very quickly head into the science stuff, particularly if people are challenging me. I'm going, no, I'm right, you're wrong. Here's more data and here's more data and here's more data. Because as a scientist, by definition, you know you are right because you've just done mm. the experiment and got the result. So much of public speaking is about emotion and connection much more than factual accuracy, right? Yeah. The facts need to be there. So that's the point of, I'd like to think we're not living in a post-truth world. It would be nice if our politicians had an even interaction with the truth at, at, at various points. It's the way you yeah. deliver it that starts to be more emotional because people can accept facts much more easily if they are emotionally engaged in them than if you just give them those dose facts, which is why storytelling is so popular right now because people realize that if you put the facts inside a story, people are much more able to accept those facts, trust those facts, remember those facts and act on those facts. I think it goes too far because yeah. people are going, tell stories, tell stories, tell stories, tell stories, without saying why you should tell stories. But the fact remains that there is a lot of utility in being a story. And I'm gonna split the difference here. I don't wanna use the word storyteller. I want to use the phrase story user. It is somebody who mm. uses stories from the stage rather than just tells stories from the stage because the latter to me is self-indulgent. I'm telling you a story, you know, Jack and Ori, so what? Here you go, entertaining, fun. But if I'm using stories, I'm using them to illustrate a point. I'm using them to bring something to life. I'm using to help my audience understand something. And I know that the phrase storyteller trips off the tongue so much more easily than story user. And story user is never going to catch on for that very reason. But wouldn't it be great if it did? I, I, lo I like it. I mean, I, I heard you talking with, with Francisco Mafos on, on his uh, Story Powers show, and it was a very interesting conversation. And you, this is some of the stuff that you were talking about with him about how storytelling perhaps gets a bit abused and overused. And, and we have seen an abundance of storytelling coaches pop mm -hmm. up for people who are teaching storytelling. But just as much as I've seen people popping up who are teaching public speaking and presentation skills who have no real background in the area and maybe very limited experience in it. And I think, how, how are you coming to do that? But then you sort of think, well, maybe people could say the same, same about me. It's like, well, who, who are you? Who, what background do you have? And to this degree, it's like, well, what actually makes someone an expert with expertise? What makes somebody good at what they do? And ultimately it comes down to the experience people have when they're on the stage or the experience people have when they're learning from It comes down to how useful I am to my audience and to my clients, yes. In a sense, it doesn't matter whether I'm right or wrong, whether I'm scientific validated or not, it comes down to whether I'm useful. And the thing that grinds my gears is when people are, are unuseful, what's the opposite of useful? Unuseful is right, yeah. When they are not useful because they're not using proper validated approaches, techniques, and data. Hmm. When they're teaching bunk, bunk tosh is the. I'm trying to get tosh to become a, a popular word again. Tosh. It's the polite version of utter. <laughs> I, I wouldn't like to say what it's the proper. Word. This is a family show, so I won't tell you what tosh is the polite word for. But... I, I, I'm not sure it is, but uh, we, we've already had we've already had a, a, a few daring words today. But I know my mother has a tendency to tune in, and she won't approve. So she'll like that we're uh, using tosh. Ooh, Johnny's mum. Um, hi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my number one downloader. I think from this. One of the things I do want to get to talking to you about, because you help people, particularly who are not mm. speakers, who are not black people who are either wanting to become professional speakers, but more people who 
probably know that they have to speak in their professional lives at some point. And what took you on that path and particularly to helping people like that? Okay, so the really short and cynical version is it's a target market niche. The more useful version is I used to be a scientist, I used to be a researcher, and I kept getting asking the same questions over and over and over from politicians and ministers and members of the public. And something occurred to me, which is either these politicians were really, really dumb or that scientists were really, really bad at explaining what they found. It turns out both of those things were true. I can't do much about it, but I can do is I can start helping the researchers explain their research. And from there, it was a small step to helping business people explain their businesses. So it became something, it started out as something of a passion because I was helping, quote, normal people cover the ground between what they know and what society needed to know. Because the number of times I saw scientists completely unable to explain what they were doing and people going off and, and misinterpreting what they were saying, the scientists were saying, and doing something completely different from what was intended, it, it just, it, yeah, it made me quite angry. It made me quite upset, but it also made me quite optimistic about how these people were really trying to explain what they were doing. It's just that they didn't lack the skills. So I figured maybe if I could help normal people a little bit, I might do more good. Oh God, that sounds so pretentious. I might do more good <laughs> in the world than helping professional speakers because my experience of a lot of professional speakers is that they want to speak and then they look for a topic. Whereas I'm much more interested mm. in helping people who've got a topic, they've got expertise and they've got a need and they have to speak. So maybe you're an accountant right. and now has to make reports to the board, that kind of thing. So you're an expert accountant, you just don't know how the hell to explain what you've done. That's the kind of people I help because there are more of them. And frankly, because they deserve more help than professional speakers, because professional speakers can get help from each other left, right and centre. Real people are the ones that need much more of, of what I can do. I'll get off my yeah. soapbox now. I'll stop making myself sound like... <laughs> yeah, one, of, <laughs> one of my rallying cries as a coach and a, even as a speaker is that everybody probably needs to have some level of presentation skills now. I, I don't think it's particularly optional anymore because in whatever role you're in, especially if you're in any kind of leadership role, you may not be presenting to a large audience, but then again, sometimes you just might. But at least you are likely to be presenting to a room of people or, or to a team. And those are the skills where people who aren't so good at that or aren't such natural communicators and aren't practiced in that, they're going to struggle. And I, I have worked with clients who have been put into situations where they've gone into a company, perhaps as an apprentice mm -hmm. or uh, in a very basic position when they started, but have worked their way up over time. But what many bigger companies have not done is given them the tools to be able to communicate and to lead and to present in those yeah. sorts of situations because it's expected that you should just be able to do it and that you'll pick it up along the way. And very often that just doesn't happen. But worse, it happens badly. What you pick up on yeah. the way is what your boss has done. And what he's picked up on the way is what, and it's usually a he, is what his boss has done and his boss has done and his boss has done and his boss has done. Hence the use of bullet points on slides. People do bullet points on mm. slides because that's what people before them have done. We know from the research that it just does not work. It's a really stupid way to deliver presentations, but that's what people do because that's what they've seen other people do. And sometimes they do it because that's what audiences expect and they would get booed off stage if they you know, if they didn't put some bullet points on stage, and I, I get the reality of the practicality of dealing with that kind of thing. But learning by experience, learning by osmosis, 
means that all you can do is learn from the environment in which you are working. And if that environment is toxic, then your presentations are going to be toxic. If your management culture is toxic, then your personal management style is going to be toxic. If everybody around you works from eight in the morning till seven at night with no breaks, you think that's normal and that's what you do. And therefore, that's what you teach your subordinates when you're a manager as well. So take a breath, Simon, and just apply the reality <laughs> of known research to it. Simple things like stupid, 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 simple things like we know that you can't concentrate for more than six hours a day. You can't do really hard brain work for more than six hours a day. So why are people trying to work for 12 hours? Wouldn't it make more sense to work for six hours a day and then go and do something else so that you're fresh the next day as opposed to, and you can apply simple tools like that to presentations. But I have to say that what I often find I end up doing is working in the real world where I'm helping people to make presentations which are good enough to work rather than the best they can absolutely be. Because in the cost-benefit analysis of the real world, the first two rehearsals are really useful. The 23rd rehearsal is incrementally useful, but is it sufficiently useful to have spent 23 hours on a presentation rather than two hours on a presentation? For a professional speaker, hell yes. But for a for me, absolutely. But for an accountant who's yeah. only got to give one report to the board per month, Probably not. They just need to do something that's good enough to get the message over. So I'm much more about the tactics of it rather than the big strategies of it. Yeah. What then are some of the foundational elements of speaking for non-speakers, do you think? Okay, brace yourself. I'm going to get straight into jargon. And it's all about cognitive load, which is how hard your audience works. And there are three bits of cognitive load. There's how hard they're working because of how hard the thing is that you're explaining to them. There's how hard they're working because of how hard they want to understand it and really get to grips with it. And then there's the third bit, which is the how hard they're working because of how bloody badly you are explaining it. And the main basics of what I'm doing is very, very often just reducing that last bit. It's called extraneous cognitive load. And it's, sometimes it's as simple as use a font that people are familiar with so they don't have to interpret the text or, or use a font which is big enough. It's the real basic stuff sometimes. Or turn yeah. off the damn clock outside that's going to go ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, dong every 15 minutes so that people get distracted. So the fundamentals are all about explaining things in small incremental trunk chunks and not moving on too quickly before people have understood the stuff you've got. But there's also a whole bunch of stuff about taking the end of your presentation and putting it at the beginning. Because what most people do, what normal people do is go, here's the problem, here's the data, here's how I worked on it, here are the caveats, here are the problems, here's more data, here's more caveats, yada, 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 here's my conclusion. And it's not until you get to the conclusion that the audience realizes they should have been paying attention to the whole of the rest of the damned presentation in the first place. Mm -hmm. So the best thing to do for normal people is to put that, and here's the conclusion right at the beginning. And then you can say, here's my conclusion. If you're not interested, fine, go back to your offices and have a cup of tea. If you are interested, the rest of the presentation is telling you how I got there so that we can validate that conclusion. Simple things, really simple things like that, just restructuring yeah. the presentation or making sure that your slides are designed to be emotionally impactful with the data attached rather than just throwing data at people in bullet points because 
because, just because, please, 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 if you take nothing away from this, just take <laughs> away bullet points don't work. Next. But as you said, maybe the most likely reason for that is because they've seen other people doing it. And because it's a default and, in PowerPoint. So they think that that's what yeah. is supposed to happen. Yeah. And it's, and it's generally, generally a bad idea. And I think PowerPoints in general, if they're not done well, they're just a distraction from what you're actually talking about. So unless you actually need to demonstrate particular information or unless they do well complement what you are talking about or perhaps even add some humor or interest to it or you need those illustrations then i, I would generally stick okay, so, so, yeah, uh, so, absolutely yeah. so my take on it is that if what you're explaining is more easily explained by a visual well, then use powerpoint if it's not don't so if you're making a presentation about brush strokes in the mona lisa for the love of God, use PowerPoint because you need to be able to show what the brush strokes actually look like. Or better still, give people brushes and have them do it. But you can, that's not practical, so let's just go for the, the PowerPoint pictures. But if what you're doing is telling a story of how you're wrestled by alligators, you don't need a bloody alligator on the screen. People know what an alligator is. Just go to, and here's the, the simplest tip of them all, just because you're using PowerPoint doesn't mean you always have to use PowerPoint. It's entirely possible to use PowerPoint party presentation, then go to a black slide and just do huge chunks of your presentation with a black screen. If, if you've got a black screen on there, it looks like you're not using PowerPoint and, and do the guts of your presentation there. And then when you need something else that's visual, bang, on comes the next slide. But you don't have to have them. And weirdly, when I tell people that, despite the fact it's blindingly obvious common sense, lots of people go, <gasps> What witchcraft is this? This is revolutionary. Because for the same reason as we've just been outlined, which is that all they've seen are people go slide, 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 slide. And they think that's what you're supposed to do without having thought through what it is the best, what's the best way to get your message across to the audience. For online presentations, that can be a bit different. And I think it ultimately depends on uh, the outcome and what it is you're actually talking about. Uh, and again, you can do both, although I think people tend to find switching between PowerPoint and not PowerPoint on an online presentation starts getting a bit messy. Really? <laughs> so, it's, it is so. literally just click a button. So it's, it's not difficult. And if no, if, no, if I know, but it's one more thing to think about, right? Yeah, okay, that's that's a fair point. And I've got an unfair advantage at this point because I toured for seven years as the technical director for dance companies. So I was responsible for lights and video and audio and everything except the actual choreography, which meant I'm used to looking at a screen, a stage, and I've got nine screens around me. So I'm used to doing that level of tech. But it does bring me to a really simple tip. If you're going to rehearse your presentation, and if not, why not? If you're going to rehearse your presentation, why not rehearse the tech as well? Because that's mm. something we all forget about. And changing screens is just as simple as Command 2 or Command... I'm using a Mac here, so it's Command 2, Command 3. Even Windows can do it you know, pretty easily. Um, it's not rocket science. So just practice where those things are on the keyboard so you don't have to go, where's the Command button? Uh, command 2. You know, if you just go at the point of line, it helps the audience. It gives you confidence because you know what you're doing and it makes your content look slicker because of something which I'm going to call the Oppenheimer effect. And that's some jargon I've just made up. Um, <laughs> the, the research is that if you're competent at one thing, people assume you are competent at another. Mm -hmm. And if you're rubbish at one thing, they assume you're rubbish at another. So if you are competent at your tech, they assume that your content is cool. 
if you're really clumsy with your tech and you go, how does this plug in? Uh, where's the microphone? Uh, what? Uh, they assume that your content is rich as well, not overtly, but subconsciously. Yeah. So why not rehearse your tech so that at least your tech is slick? So you've got a better chance of people thinking that your content is cool. Yeah. So in a, in a boardroom situation, it's really as simple as things like going in with your laptop turned on and your PowerPoint slide already open so that when you plug in the damned cables, things magically appear on the screen in 10 seconds, as opposed to the 10 minutes it takes to turn on your laptop, find the damn PowerPoint. It's common sense as soon as I say it. It, it is, and I, I will generally advise people to be prepared for tech not working, <laughs> mainly due to the amount of times that I have had that happen to me, especially in venues where the setup just hasn't been right or something just isn't working or a cable connection just doesn't seem to be coming on and your PowerPoint is suddenly not available to you. I think if you can't still give the presentation without PowerPoint, then it's a highlight to you that you were relying on it and uh, you should be able to get around it. Yeah, it depends whether you're using PowerPoint to enhance the content or whether you're using the PowerPoint as a crutch. So if you're using it as yeah. a crutch, you deserve to not have the PowerPoint work. There is justice in the world if, if, that is the, if that is the case. But there's something that some people always forget, which is that just because you're using PowerPoint doesn't mean you have to have it on the damn screen or the television. You can still have it on your laptop as a prompt or as an aid memoir, even if it's not showing on the showing on the screen. Which is it's a, a, one of those simple but revolutionary. Like, what? Well, yeah, of course you can just have a laptop and just hit the space bar and it runs through what it is you're supposed to be saying, even if the slides aren't changing on the screen or even if you're not using the stuff on the screen. So I don't yeah. want people to think that PowerPoint just has to be the images on the screen behind the no. speaker. I agree that it can be a great way of helping you remember the flow of your presentation uh, and keep you on track for the things you want to talk about. But again, you know, too many people rely, over-rely on PowerPoint, so yeah. that's a good thing to talk yeah. about. But the irony, for, of course, that I don't use PowerPoint at all. I use different software. <laughs> Ironically, I don't actually own a copy of PowerPoint except to export to to give it to clients. <laughs> but when it comes to perhaps being a speaker when you're not really a speaker, there's probably a lot of fear that comes up, especially if someone's being asked to give a presentation and they haven't done one before. Do you have some general pointers for overcoming that panic that usually sets in as soon as someone's been asked to? There are lots of them. There's one which I really love explaining under these circumstances called catch the apple, because it turns out that it's actually for most people, it's not the presentation that freaks them out. It is the consequences or the possible consequences of the presentation that freaks them out. What if it goes wrong? So a really simple technique is just to concentrate on doing the gig, not worrying about the fallout from if the gig goes wrong. And the exercise I quite often give people is just have them stand in a circle and throw an apple between each other. Throw the apple, catch the apple, throw the apple, catch the apple. And then I raise the stakes and go, first person to drop the apple has to buy my coffee. Throw the apple, catch the apple, throw the apple, catch it. First person to drop the apple has to buy me dinner. Throw the apple, catch the apple. And of course, the chances of, of dropping the apple go up. But the actual physics, the mechanics of catch the apple, throw the apple hasn't changed at all. So if people just concentrate on throwing the apple and catching the apple, it's still going to work. It's just going to, you know, it only goes wrong if they start thinking, oh my God, if, if I drop this, Simon's going to charge me 50 quid for dinner with wine. So to just concentrate on the gig, not on the consequences of the gig. Easier said than done, I know, but, but not difficult. 
or there's a whole bunch of techniques to do with something called, have you come across the idea of peripheral vision? The idea, the stuff that you yes. see out of the corner of your eye? Clearly, I did not see the microphone out of the corner of my eye. I've just clobbered it. <laughs> One of the things that happens when you get anxious is that a whole bunch of hormones cut in and your brain filters out all the stuff you see out of the corner of your eye. Evolutionary, it makes a great deal of sense because if you're the scary thing, I'm now taking in more information about you. And therefore, I've got a better chance of running away from a saber-toothed tiger or whatever the hell it is. But if you're making a presentation, that's less useful because it means that everything that you are looking at scares you because you've ignored all this stuff. So there's an exercise I use, which is just to get people to concentrate on what can you see out of your peripheral vision? Well, I'm looking at the camera now, but in my peripheral vision, I can see my second monitor. That's not scary. I can see my mug of tea. That's not scary. I can see my microphone. That's not scary. I can see my printer. That's not scary. I can see photographs of my goddaughter. That's not scary. I can see drawings that my children did as they were four. Those aren't scary. I can see the, out the window. That's not scary. So what I'm doing now is going, the microphone is still scary. The camera is still scary. But I'm now putting it in the context of 20, 30, 40, 50 things which are not scary. So it dilutes the mm. scary thing. The chairman of the board might be scary, but the chair that the chairman of the board is sitting on, that's not scary. Your laptop, not scary. The tea and coffee urn, not scary. So just by becoming aware of the stuff that's in your peripheral vision, you dilute the scary thing. Uh, that, that's interesting because when I was taught public speaking, my, my very first professional training that I paid money for and all of that, one of the things that we taught was this presenter state. And it's something that I haven't gone back to research and see how much of it is accurate and true. But we got taught peripheral vision state that we had to put ourselves in before going on stage, which I admit I, I still do uh, and I still use it. It's become part of my routine. And I find it helpful. So I guess that's the thing of regardless of what I find out about it, I'm still going to do it yeah. because I find it helpful. And being in that peripheral vision state, it does seem to give you a particular, maybe it is just that thing of you expand out mm -hmm. one way, maybe your mind expands out a bit more from, from what you're fo singularly focused on. And so it opens up, you, opens you up to more things. I, I don't know, but again, it, it's just a useful thing. But it was taught as this thing called expanded awareness or hack allow, the sort of uh, technique that, that is even used in martial arts to some degree of being able to scan and scope a, a room very quickly. Mm. But this is particularly being taught as a, a method to calm nerves and to help you feel good even in difficult situ or tense situations. And uh, it would be interesting. I don't know if there's more, if there's actually scientific research on this, but I, I'm going to have to check it out. Th there is. And if anybody's desperate, drop me a line and I'll give you the world's most boring references on it. I'd like to know. Da -da. They are so boring, even I fell asleep reading them. <laughs> but there is a second advantage to it as well, in that it allows you to address the next part of your presentation to the person who is most likely to be falling asleep. So I'm looking over here, my peripheral vision over there, picks up that somebody's not quite paying attention. So naturally my mm. next sentence is delivered over here. And over there in the corner of my eye, I see somebody who doesn't understand. So does that make sense? Which means I'm always addressing the member of the person in the audience who looks like they most need me to draw their attention back in. It's not a perfect technique. No technique is perfect, but it's a canny handy tool, sure. particularly in the boardroom, because it, it means you can be looking at the chairman of the board and realize that the CFO has stopped paying attention. And if you're trying to get the CFO to sign off on a project that's going to require the CFO authorizing you budget, you don't want that, which means that your next paragraph is straight to the CFO's eyes to, to force the CFO to, to, to not pay. You can't force anybody to pay attention, but you, you get the gist.
I do. And, and certainly I found it a very helpful tool with live audiences of being able to not just everyone feels that you're connecting with them in some way and that you're looking at them. You're not focused on one person or one thing. And people do definitely notice when you do that, mm. but that you are actually more able to connect with everyone. But you are also able to notice more movement in the general peripheral area and direct yourself. And it is a big reminder of the audience that m many uses for this. And it's something that would be interesting to, to go even deeper onto. So I thought I for one would be interested to check out some of the research, even if it's a bit, it's, even oh, if it's a bit trust, uh, soporific. Yes, so, yeah, soporific is the polite version for it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I do want to get onto and, and probably not spend too much time it, but I do want to go onto it because it was interesting. And we had some fun talking about it when we had a, a pre-chat for the show about people have, having their emotional traumas on stage or on a platform in front of other people like whilst they're in them. And this thing about, we, we talk a lot about authenticity these days. And, and I think a lot of people do take that to be put everything out there, your whole life, your dirty washing, whatever's going on for you emotionally, it's all valid. Put it up on the stage. I'm not saying you can't do that, but I don't think it's a good idea. And uh, so we talked about this and, and you have a particular expression. Paul. Yes, I do. Oh, I, I just need to give a health and safety warning at this point. Johnny's mum, stop listening now because I'm going to use a rude word, okay? <laughs> la, 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 um, <laughs> it's, we, if we're feeling really rude about it, we just call that emotional masturbation. It is just making yourself feel good on stage and you're using the audience as unpaid therapists. I love talking therapies. You talk stuff through, you get through it, you recover from it. That's great. But could you please pay a therapist to do that rather than make me sit in the audience and watch you do that? Apart for there's a whole bunch of reasons. The first is it's just embarrassing for the audience to watch. Sorry for those of you who've made a career out of it. We're not respectful of you. We are kind of going, oh, God, that's gross. But the other thing is that it doesn't help the audience because it's mm -hmm. this idea of being authentic. Yeah, there, there's such a thing as too much authenticity. If I'm showing you my bleeding scar, exactly how much use is that to me as an audience member? Um, I want you to consider the phrase scars, not uh, scabs, not scars. Sorry, scars, not scabs. Get the right way around. I want it to be <laughs> recovered. I want it to be healed. Yeah. I want to see the scar where you have done the thing, recovered from it and moved on rather than don't show me the separating yeah. wound that's going to make me go, oh, God, that's gross. Because all that does is make me go, oh, God, that's gross. It doesn't give me any hope that I can get beyond it. Whereas a yeah. scar, scars, not scabs, get it the right way around, Simon. Scars, not scabs means no matter how bad this thing is, the speaker has got past it. Mm. It is important. And it's just funny because there, there was such a big event that I had an experience of, and it was a three-day live event. If I start saying where it was and stuff like that, people, some people I know will, will, will know where that was and what event it was. But the, the speaker, the main presenter, was having a big emotional unravel during the mm. event and decided to start talking about it with the audience. Now, Unsurprisingly, more than half the audience cleared out. And probably by the end of the event, there were maybe 500 people where there'd been perhaps nearly 3,000 when we started. And it was because of that. It's hard to watch. It's hard to sit through that. And if you are at a personal development event where people are talking about, hey, come and live your best life, but look at what a wreck I am. There's a definite uh, dissonance between where you yeah, are yeah, yeah. and where you are. No, people want to see that you can do it. It's like the tech thing. If people see that you're a bit of an emotional mess on stage, maybe it is authentic and it's honest to what's going on in your life, but you I cannot so. be on a stage teaching that. Right. So, so I think, I think I got it just right in my TEDx. 
other people will not, but I think I got it just right, where I said, I, I mentioned the fact that my daughter had cancer and we didn't know how treatable it was. And I tell the story of people's responses to that when, uh, you know, my daughter has cervical cancer, we don't know if it's treatable. And people's responses are, oh, that reminds me, my smear test is overdue as well. In what world is that helpful? But it's a story hmm. I tell on stage. Now, if I am still in the state where I'm going, oh, my God, my daughter might die, I can't tell that story on stage. I get upset, and it doesn't help the audience. But now that we are years in the past, and I can tell that story and treat that inappropriate response as a joke, it's okay. I'm showing the scars. You know, my daughter had cancer. We did. We told people they did this stupid thing, but it's okay. That's a scar. If I'm still upset by the fact that they did this stupid thing, then that's a scab and I shouldn't be doing it. So as a crude rule of thumb, and this is such a crude rule of thumb, if you get upset telling the story, don't tell the damned story <laughs> because you're clearly not on the far side of it. All those things where you go, well, this will yeah. be funny in 10 years. Yes, it will. So let's wait tell for 10 then. years. <laughs> yeah, let's, <laughs> let's not tell the story yeah. of, of the disaster when the car crashed and all the people with blood everywhere. And you're going, well, this will be funny in 10 years. Yeah, I'm sure it will be, mate. So don't tell me about it now. Wait for 10 years. <laughs> so there's so many more things I, I would love to talk to you about uh, and maybe we can bring you again in the future because it's been a really fun conversation and uh, I've been enjoying it and I love challenging the preconceptions and the, the standard myths that uh, are all around everywhere as well that's and, kind and of what really... I do it's my trademark marketing thing at the moment is to go here's a myth I'm gonna debunk it <laughs> I, I like it. One of the, one of the things I wanted to get to was was what you were talking about last, last week on your in one of your blogs or your articles. I saw you posting uh, about how you don't need to have these big moments oh, of yes. impact, these super memorable moments. We're going to have to talk about it another time, I guess, because we're, <laughs> we're running out of time now. But but it was a great article. People should go and check you out on social media, perhaps on LinkedIn. Particularly, that's where I, I see that's, a lot of yeah, stuff. Yeah, LinkedIn. That and, was the article you're talking about. There was on LinkedIn. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you've got another one coming out, right? Which is following on from that. I've got a whole series of them. There's so many things, Fantastic. there are so many things that make me annoyed. I've got a whole bunch of things. <laughs> <laughs> what really grinds my gears. Yeah. I, I, I love that. And, and people love those sorts of things as well. I did an article series a while back of the five things about personal development that I really effing hate. And uh, that, that did okay as well. And it, it's still up on LinkedIn if anyone wants to check it out. Uh, I always like to ask my guests for a book recommendation before we wrap things up. If I come to you for a book recommendation, what would it be? Fiction, nonfiction, speaking, not speaking, or whatever it is. Am I allowed to recommend my own? Does that work? How's that? <laughs> you can uh, recommend your own book. I encourage okay. you to do um, that. And give us one that isn't yours as, as well. Okay, one that isn't mine. Um, can I give you a – it's a non-presentations non book, and it really turned around the way I thought about an awful lot of things. It's The Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin, and it was written – oh. So many years ago, I can't remember. It's a what we would now call a um, sort of young adult fantasy novel. But there's a point in it where the hero is getting chased around the world by a shadow version of himself. And he suddenly realizes because the shadow version of himself is just as powerful as he is. And it suddenly dawns on him that it's just as powerful as he is, which means that if he hunts it, then... You know, there's nothing lost. It's not going to overpower him. It's exactly the same as him. And that uh, that idea of turning things around and going at things rather than retreating things is, a, mm. is a something that served me well over the last mm, 
<laughs> years. No, it's not true. I'm 58, no. 37. But like the best defense is a good attack. Kind yeah, of thing, it, it is. Yeah. But it, it's a reasoned offense. It's not the mindless offense. It's thinking, you know, if I took, if I pushed at this, what's the worst that can happen rather than playing defensively all the time, particularly with a view to presentations, because we so often go into presentations thinking, how am I going to stop things going wrong? But I want people to think, to go into presentations thinking, how can I make things go right? And it sounds yeah. like a, a semantic twist, but it changes the whole way you design a presentation. It makes it much more likely that the presentation is going to do two things. It makes it more likely it's going to succeed. It also makes it more likely it's going to crash and burn, yes, but it makes it more likely it's going to succeed. Whereas if you go into a presentation purely defensively, I don't know, to use a football analogy, it's like putting all 11 players in your own box. You might still lose by an unlucky deflection, but you sure as hell can't win. Um, yeah. No, I, I like it. The language we use is important. The direction it's focused in is important. And uh, it's something we could all stand to be more conscious yeah, of. With, with time. common sense, yeah. I mean, don't, don't mindlessly aggress on anything, but just have a think about you know, if I pushed on this, what would happen? Yeah. But please do give your own book a plug as well. Oh, Presentation Genius. I have to confess that it's not the title I would have chosen, but the publishers <laughs> had a series coming up. They had Presentation Genius, Sales Genius, Marketing Genius, and they wanted to launch the series with with, with mine, so they approached me to write Presentation Genius. Great. And I read 400 and something research papers for it, so they were bleeding out of my wow. ears. And there's a whole social media campaign I've got of, of my entire spare room covered yay deep in, well in research papers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, other than LinkedIn, is there another place where people can come and check uh, you? I do almost weekly tip sheets. So if you go to presentationgenius.info slash hi, I say I, I, I aim for weekly and fail, I think is my mantra. So out of the 52 weeks a year, I probably hit about 40 because life and those are just helpful stuff that I put out almost once a week just because really I've no idea why I do it. I probably should actually try and do something with that but I just do it just to <laughs> you know put something useful out into the world if, if there's one thing you'd like people to remember from today or to take with them from this chat what would it be I think that last thing I've just been talking about if you design your presentations to do something to win to be a successful presentation think of that as different from designing a defensive presentation because defensive presentations by definition can't change the world. Simon, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. I hope we can come back again in the future and talk about some of those things we didn't get time for today. I encourage everyone to go and check them out. Please do look for the links in the show notes uh, to find out more about Simon and check out his articles and his website. And we'll see you again on another show very soon. A lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, please make sure you put something into action that you learned here today. And of course, subscribe to the show if you haven't already done so. If you'd like to support the show, one of the best ways for you to do that is to share our episodes with your network. Now, of course, share the episodes that you love, or perhaps more than the ones that you don't, but word of mouth makes a huge difference to us. And you can now support the show financially as well, even just by buying me a coffee. For five US dollars a month, you can help make the Speaking Influence podcast an even bigger and better show. There's also a membership level where you can get exclusive access to our live stream recordings to be in the virtual studio with us and exclusive Q&A time with our show guests, as well as advanced information of the shows and guests that are coming up. To do that, visit the Supercast page in the show notes or in the YouTube description. For now, see you next time and go and make great things happen.